I have a tendency to prowl, so <laughs> time to move the instruments. <laughs> so we're going to study the school of the refuel, the school of the refuel, and it's a continuation in our Meet the King series, going through the Gospel of Mark. In uh, my studies, I learned a term called prolegomena. It sounds flash, but it means before speak. In other words, I'm going to say what I'm going to say before I say what I'm going to say. It should tee, tee me up for what I'm going to say. So last week, Keith preached on the healing of the deaf man with a speech impediment. The way that narrative excerpt ends links very nicely to a key lesson from today's message. So let's recap on what Keith was sharing. So chapter 7, 34 through to 37 says this. He, or Jesus, looked up to heaven... And with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak plainly. He commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more the people kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. See, there's a pronoun shift in this account between 35 and 36, or more specifically, it moves from his and he, speaking of the man being healed, to them and they, speaking of the crowd. Jesus moves his focus from the man to the crowd, and the crowd are instructed to keep the miracle under wraps, but they're overwhelmed by the acts of God and want to share it on the gossip grapevine. Nothing new in Christian circles there then or believe in circles. So the crowd's focus is on the acts of God, but the man's focus is on the God who acts. The crowd's focus is on the acts of God. The man who is healed is on the God who acts, i.e. Jesus who heals. And that is my link, that's my before speak, that actually that is the flavour of the school of the refuel. It is imperative as Christian believers, and this will link very nicely to a week on Tuesday where I share my first Kingdom DNA teaching. It is imperative that we have our eyes on the prize, Jesus Christ. It is imperative that we learn to rely on him, because without him we can do nothing, John says in his gospel. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. And this is Mark's intentionality in his redaction and his, in his editing. We're immersed in the disciples' training program. Jesus has been opening them up to a global mission that includes Gentiles. That's where we've been with the Syrophoenician woman and others. We journey into Gentile territory. Jesus is training his disciples to see there is a world beyond the Jewish family, the Jewish tradition. There's a world of people that God cares about. Is it right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs? Of course it is. Jesus wants to heal the, the, the demonized child. He's wanting to set that child free, but he's actually making a public declaration. It is what we call a parabole, a parable. He's saying like he did in chapter 4 of Mark, this is for those exo, these, this is for those outside, that they too can come in. But the majority, and we'll find that in our narrative today, don't come in. As in chapter 4 where he shares the parable of the sower and the crowd stay outside and there's only those that gather around him and are hungry for the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in chapter 4, to them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given. That they might know the one from whom the supply of God flows. 
You see, your lesson today in this message, if I don't make myself clear, hear it now. Jesus is the source of all that you need. Now you can, you can say that, it sounds like a trite cliche, but it is completely true. And we get a little bit confused on that matter and we move away from that when we get a little bit let down by life. We have to do what Artie Kendall says and break through the betrayal barrier when in trial God appears to be distant from us. You see, trials tend to coincide with what Kendall calls the hiding of the face of God. It appears that his presence is remote when in actuality he is close. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble, as it says in Psalm 46. As Psalm 34 says, he's near to those who are broken and contrite in spirit. As it says in Psalm 139, where can I flee from your spirit? God is everywhere. So when Mark is saying the glory of God is in this church... You don't have to feel the glory. You don't have to have the experience of the priests that we were singing about where we come underneath the the weighty presence of the kabod, the anointing of God's presence. You can say with biblical completeness that the presence of God, the glory of God, is presently over the whole earth. Otherwise, the angels in Isaiah 6 would have never said, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Later on in Habakkuk, it says, one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is that the eyes of human beings will be eventually open to the fact that God reigns, that he is on the throne, visible and invisible, that the Lord is God Almighty. You see, the rebellious heart says there is no God, but the Bible says that person is a fool. Let's get away from political correctness, call a spade a spade. Paul says it in Romans 1, you can see by the things that were made, everything that is true about God, but you choose to go another way, so God sets them over to a depraved mind where they choose to live outside of intimacy with God. But Jesus, back to the main point, is the source of what we need. Let's get into the school of the refuel. That was my prolegomena, my before speak. Reading 21 verses of Mark chapter 8, try and stay awake. During those days, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I love this phrase, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told his disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. That's another phrase I love. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Familiar pattern. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back in the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one of them, except for one loaf they had with them on the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. 
Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see or ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, let your kingdom come in Jesus' name. Let your will be done here at Freedom Church today. Speak to our lives through this weak and failing and imperfect person. And let your voice be heard amongst my words and perhaps all of my words to these precious people. So that lives would be built up, encouraged and changed for the glory of God for all eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I prayed then. And I want every preacher in this room to listen up to me in this. You can be as homiletically sound as you want to be. You can be as intricately argued and structurally obsessed and not change a gnat. The vital thing that the man or woman of God needs when they're speaking the word of God is the Holy Spirit. It needs God. It's a ridiculous thing that God uses people to do his work. The Pharisees thought they'd arrived. They were, they were schooled to their eyeballs. But the truth remains, Jesus lambasted them because all that they needed was a presence. See, see, the presence of God can set ablaze the weakest or the greatest saints. And you can still have the impact because, same impact because it's God who does the work. The Lord is good. The Lord is great. The Lord is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we've ever asked or thought according to whose power? Steve Kerry's power, your power? No. We know this, but let's fall on him. Let's say, Jesus, I want to see Chester one, but there's no way I can even see one soul one without the operation of your Holy Spirit. The Bible says it's the work of the Spirit to convict concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So don't get clever with your evangelism techniques or think you can pastorally journey with someone in super training. The truth remains the Holy Spirit is the best shepherd. The Holy Spirit is the best teacher. The Holy Spirit is the best evangelist. And we need to be a church that is presence-soaked and God-seeking. And then we'll become purpose-driven in the right sense that the Lord is having his way through his people. You see, God always wanted a theocracy. He always wanted to be on the throne of his people, but Israel asked for a king, and the Lord said, well, you can have a king if you want, but you're better if I'm on the throne, and that has always been the case. Jesus Christ is Lord, and we need to give him room to be God in the midst of us, because when we do, when man retires to the background, God takes the foreground. Bonky said that. He said, if I'm ever I'm in the foreground, Jesus is in the background. But when I'm in the background, <laughs> hallelujah. That happened in the Welsh Revival, didn't it, with Evan Roberts? No time to explore that. Okay, so I'm going to speak three points based on our reading there. Number one, the journey is exhausting. Number two, the opposition is draining. You're encouraged yet? But number three, thankfully, Jesus Christ is reigning. And because of that, when the journey is exhausting, he is the source of our supply. 
When the opposition is draining, he is our refuge. When Jesus Christ is reigning, it means all things are possible to them who believe. God of the breakthrough, God of the overflow, God of the impossible being made possible through the lives of ordinary people. Stop limiting yourself. You with your self-rejecting heart, Jesus loves you and wants to use you. I'm speaking to someone's life there. Or I hope I do. You'll bear with me, won't you? Number one, the journey is exhausting. During those days, it says in Mark 8, 1 to 3, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have had compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Church following Jesus inspires enthusiasm and persistence. We'll see miracles. We'll see lives transformed. But in spite of that, we will be totally exhausted at points trying to establish by God's grace what he wants to do amongst us. Wave at me if you've experienced that. Come on, be honest. Serve God with all your heart and it left you burned out. Jesus inspires enthusiasm and persistence. These people had stayed there three days without home and food supplies. But they were tired. And do you know what? The phrase in verse 2 is beautiful, isn't it? Jesus had compassion on them. So often he'd be the good shepherd who leads us beside the still waters. Sometimes he'll forcefully put us in our back to teach us to rest. For Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so often in the church, we forget this. But he prefixes it. He says, for I am humble in heart. You see, the driver that gives man most of their stress is the desire to self-exalt. It started in the garden when the serpent says to Adam and Eve, you shall be like gods. And it pervades humanity, as Isaiah said, everyone has turned to their own way. And it's even in the church that we desire position, we desire effectiveness, we desire this, that, and the other. And sometimes from good motives, but the devil hijacks it. And burns us out. If he, can, if he can't make a saint fall into sin, he'll rub his hands together when he wears them out through overwork. Isn't that right? The devil knows he can't get some of you to fall into sin because you've conditioned yourself to live clean. But he can certainly take you down the line of working zealously for God. And God's nowhere near your hard efforts because he loves you. He's a good shepherd. You only have the grace in life to do the things God has called you and wired you to do. And there is a Christian word in the language of the Christian ease that we all speak to one another. Bless you, brother. High five, etc. It's this, the word no. It's okay to say no. Serving Jesus, the journey, it's exhausting sometimes. It's no wonder that people like Wayne Cradera writes books like Leading on Empty. So often leaders and lay people need to fill their tank. The Fuller Institute, Francis Schaeffer, the Barna Group have done various surveys of thousands of pastors. They came up with this data. 100% of the 1,050 pastors interviewed in a seminary, in, 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 who had a seminary background or a theological background, who were now in the ministry, knew of friends trained with them who'd left the ministry. 90% said they were frequently fatigued. 90% church leaders. 
89% said they considered leaving the ministry. 57% said they would leave if they had a better secular job to go to. 77% of the pastors of age said they felt that they did not have a good marriage. 77%. Somehow we're getting this wrong. This is over a thousand people in one interview. 75% felt disheartened in their ability to pastor. 72% stated they only studied the Bible when they were preparing for sermons or lessons. That means only 38%, if I got that right, 28% had a devotional life where they got into the Word. 28%, that's about a quarter of pastors, of a thousand pastors. Imagine the number of people that represents. 71% said they were burned out and they battled depression beyond fatigue on a weekly basis and even a daily basis. 38% of pastors said they were divorced or in the process of a divorce. 30% said they had had an ongoing affair. One third of over a thousand pastors had fallen into an illicit affair. This says to me something of the voice of Jesus, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. How is this encouraging me, Stephen? How is this building me up? The truth remains, following Jesus is exhausting, and the devil will do anything, particularly to slow a church down. He'll go for the leaders first. He'll try and set disharmony amongst the leadership. He'll send exocets from within and without of the church at leaders. The devil's primary target is leaders. I took a lady in my church who was the head of a sixth form into a ministry which is called Freedom in Christ, and I said, today, Rosemary, I have put a target on your back. At the time, she didn't realize, but when she journeyed a little bit down the road of setting people free on this course from various conditions and demonic oppressions, she said, Steve, I've never had it so tough. It's like everything started to come out of the woodwork. She was one of the best teachers in the school, and she became suddenly hated by so many people. Outside and inside, inside her family, it was as if the, the stakes had been raised. I would ask you in this church to create a culture where you back leadership. I'm telling you, if you don't learn to follow leadership, you'll never lead, or you'll never lead legitimately. If you learn to follow well, God will entrust you with leadership. Only 25% of the people in these pastors' churches attended a Bible study or small group at least twice a month. So generally, the flocks represented by these people don't appear to be hardcore followers of Jesus, maybe just Sunday Christians. This sends a shock message through that so often churches and individuals in churches are separated from the source of their supply. Let's move into a more positive area now. Are you ready? Jesus said, I have compassion for these people. Jesus is desperate for the best for these people's life. John 10, 10 says, I have come, this is Jesus' words, that they might have life in all its fullness. We somehow distort that and say, I would have church in all its fullest expression. Actually, when churches come alive, it's because people have come alive. Churches come alive when people start doing life well. I started encouraging my people to not come to church groups. That's scary, isn't it? At Bethel, because they were doing too much. I said, spend time with your family. Different thing here, we're starting church. That was an 80-year-old church. Spend time with your family. Stop burning yourself out. Get a hobby. Enjoy life. And then you'll come alive again. And when you serve in the local church, the people come in and say, what is it you've got? What is it in your life that's different? Well, Jesus Christ is in my life. 
You see, you need to have a good shop window if you're going to pull people into church. You can't be beleaguered, bittered, embittered, broken, burned out, battered, and any other alliterative word starting with B that, that, that I can come up with. You can't be any of those things because the world will not be attracted to a broken, burned out Christian. Ruth in the Old Testament's an example that shouts against that, but anyway, we'll not go down that road. Is anyone hearing me in this? Are you, some of you are not going to like this, but I just preach whatever Jesus shows me, and we'll talk about it over coffee if you don't like it. I believe that the answer uh, to, to make sure you're cared for on the journey is contraculture. The means of success here is not movement or activity, it is staying close to Jesus. That's where everything flows from. You need to cut down your activity and increase your intimacy. I need to do that too. That's where everything flows from. That's what we need. That's why Jesus said in John 6 and John 4 that he was the bread of life and that he would give living water. He uses the present continuous tense. In other words, that we have to keep coming to him for the bread of life, for the living water. Keep coming, keep asking for bread. He uses this phrase with bread. He says, if you come to me, you shall never run dry. You'll never be dissatisfied. You'll never be empty. And you think, well, Jesus... I've come for you for stuff and I need to come back to you for stuff. Why would I never be empty? It's because he's saying, coming in the tense that he uses, keep coming, keep coming because I'm your source of supply. He's not the only one who fuels, he's not the one who fuels you up, he's the one that refuels you up. He's not the source of our supply, he's the resource of our supply. And the right word, we keep revisiting him, revisiting the source. Did you get that? We must drink from this cup as often as we can. This involves the pursuit of his person so that we might receive the bread of his presence or the refreshing living water of his spirit. Does this apply to church planting and church development? I can see a few people still with me. Of course it does. So often we try to build God's church and find themselves at the end of our, then find ourselves at the end of our resources. It's not the strength of our arms that will build the church. It is the presence of God amongst the people. Jesus said, I will build my church. For me, the presence of God is the most important resource for any church. Apart from him, we can do nothing. I've already mentioned that Joanine passage in John 15. So often God has to break us to demonstrate that we are not strong enough for the task. Actually, such brokenness was applied to you so that you might become God-dependent, operating in all humility. You went through stuff and you said, where is God? But God was actually saying, come and kneel before me. If you kneel before the Lord, you'll stand before men and your face will be unashamed. People who know their Lord shall be strong and do exploits, it says in Daniel. You need to know the Lord. It is the primary thing in Christianity. Jesus said, this is eternal life, John 17, 3, to know you, the one true God. That is it. That is Christianity right there. Do you know the Lord? Don't tell me the, sub- the statement of faith you subscribe to or the miracles you did for Jesus. Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name, do many mighty signs and wonders? He'll depart. He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. The word know there as a backdrop Hebraically of intimacy in a male-female relationship that brings children. It said, Adam knew his wife Eve, knew his wife Eve, and she bare a son. God wants that for us. I remember once I was in my devotional life 
praying and the Lord said to me, Steve, I want you to develop the language of intimacy. He showed me this idea of pillow talk. You see, I know about Wayne Rooney, but I don't know Wayne Rooney. I know about Denzel Washington, read it in the magazines, but I don't know Denzel Washington. We can talk about Jesus, but are we talking about what Jesus said to us day by day? Is Jesus the center of our joy? Is Jesus the source of it all for you? Because God has compassion on you and his compassion says this one thing, will you not come to me that you might find rest? Come to me, you who are weary, come to me. Jesus said, you who are weary and I will give you rest. For I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. Humility, which is to see yourself under God in the right perspective, submitted to his provision, is the right way to being chilled out and enjoying life under Christ. Self-promotion, ego, kingdom building, that's the way to a high cholesterol, high blood pressure, nervous breakdown and church fractured relationships. You see, you will never have to self-promote. It is God who promotes. The Bible says promotion neither comes from the east nor the west. It's the Lord's doing. I want you to know I've never, ever sought a platform or a pulpit, asked for a job, or even tried to get a microphone in my hand. Never once. I sought Jesus with all my heart. And that is it, folks. God dependence and the pursuit of his refreshing presence reduces our often vain activity, shifts our focus from us to him and moves us into the realm of the impossible made possible. So on this journey of pilgrimage, which is often exhausting, it is wise to draw from Christ's resources and operate in the humility that seeks only to do his will. This will involve a single pursuit only, the pursuit of intimacy with Christ. All of our true productivity for the kingdom flows out of that. Everything else is wasted energy and could, could smell of ego and pride. Number two, and these will be quicker, don't worry. The opposition is draining. Mark eight eleven to 12 said the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. For me, two factors come into play here. One, opposition is inevitable. We're going to explore that. And then the second one, Jesus cuts them off. Let's look at opposition is inevitable. Albert Hubbard, American writer of the 19th century, said this, and many of you will have heard it said, even by Aristotle and perhaps Eleanor Roosevelt, this, to avoid criticism... Say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. You only have to look on Twitter to see the opposition of the apparently successful. For example, the other day I was looking at the Pontifex, the Pope, and Nicky Gumbel, and when they tweeted something that was just beautiful and Christ-soaked, a Catholic and an Anglican, do you see I'm just catering for <laughs> both sides of that? You like that, didn't you? You've got Catholic friends. Dispense of this this uh, denominationalism that destroys the beautiful expression of diversity in the kingdom. They put these beautiful tweets out, very simple, often from these great people, and the barrage of abuse you read underneath. Such, I mean, how, some of the stuff that they'd say to the Pope on these Twitter feeds, you feel like finding where these people live, and then you just pray for them instead before you get into sin. 
But people favour underdogs, but only follow top dogs. Underdogs or people's champion make the dizzy heights of success seem attainable for all of us lesser mortals. Conversely, people still build monuments to the greats, finding catharsis in celebrities' various failures. We love a good gossip story in the OK magazine because it makes us feel a little bit better about our drudgery and our life. There's something of a cathartic release that says, phew, even mortal, even those people in the dizzy heights are, are able to and open to fail. If you don't admit to that, you maybe have never laughed at someone in a cartoon getting smacked around the chops with a plank or something. It's something about that in the human nature that uh, we find deeply satisfied in the fall of other people. It's a weird thing. Usually the opposition in this context where the opposition is draining is people. That's what Nicky Gumbel found. That's what the Pope found. People are the instrument the devil uses to destroy lives. This can obviously be demonic. It's not always the case. It's sometimes sinfully driven by sinful hearts, one of the two. But the opposition is commonplace in every sphere where people succeed, but also in the visible church. I say visible because, like wheat and chaff, in every church are those who are saved and unsaved. I long to be in a church where there is every single person, this might be one of them, you never know, you look like incredible people, where every single person knows the Lord intimately. Only Jesus knows who the true invisible church is, and on that day it will come out in the wash. Do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour? If you don't, today's his day to lay your life down at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, you died for me and gave me your life. Now I will give you my life and serve you for all my days. I put that out to you there. Don't miss this opportunity today if that's you. David said, even my close friend, someone who I trusted, who shared my bread, has turned against me. You see, an Absalom spirit in the church courts popularity and seeks to electioneer, and this will eventually lead the individual into a removal by the same process. If you know the story I'm talking about, it's in 2 Samuel 18, where Joab's men take Absalom out for his revolt against David. The door that, first, that a person forced open to get into a position of influence was closed in the same way it was opened by a gathering around. It's better to be promoted by the Lord, knowing that all steps up are a step down. True callings keep a person against all the odds. I tell you, if you want a position, if you want to be a pastor, a preacher, an evangelist, try it out. Because eventually... It's only the call that will keep you. It's only the call that keeps someone in a position of vocational ministry. Some of you may aspire to that. I've got a chapter that I'll give to anyone on my chair by Charles Spurgeon, who talks on the call to the ministry in lectures to my students. It says this, God usually opens the doors of utterance for those whom he calls to speak in his name. Impatience would push open a door or break it down, but faith waits upon the Lord, and in due season, her opportunity is awarded her. You know, in a church like this that is just forming, it's imperative, as C.J. Mahaney said, that we value unity. Great churches fall on the back of disunity. And unity starts in your heart, it starts in my heart, it's a determination amongst each one of us to see the best, to overlook weaknesses, to bear with one another, Jesus uses language like if your brother causes you to sin. Oh, they said to me, Jesus, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Jesus uses the 70 times 7 phrase. That is for the church. 
We're going to have to keep forgiving, keep ensuring unity, avoiding opposition. Don't be like Judas and strike the shepherd. Don't take leaders down with critique. It's not the job of the church to criticize leaders. It's the job of the church to follow. Don't worry, I don't have a gender with this. I don't perceive anyone not following. I'm new. I don't know where we're all up to, but I'm just sharing what I feel like God put on my heart. Avoid being the one who strikes. It's a dangerous thing to attack a leader called by God. As brothers and sisters, we need to learn the Matthew 18 principle. That is to say that when we have a problem with one another, what, what happens first? Come on, there's loads of mature believers in this room. What do we do? We go to the person in private, then we take a witness, then we go to the eldership, then it's in front of the church. So much happens in a healthy way to resolve conflict that way. We need to learn it to minimize. And also we must learn the imperative to follow elders, as it says in Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. As elders develop in this church, And there will be some of you who become elders in this church. Make sure that there's a culture of honour in leaders because that's the way you get promotion and grow under God. Authority and submission to it breeds the ability to operate in authority. You still with me? No. Yes. Come on. So opposition is inevitable. When the opposition is draining... What did Jesus do? Jesus cut himself off from the flack. It says he moved away from the Pharisees. Frank Viola, who's an American Christian writer and blogger, said the following. Haters are going to hate, period. And if you're successful, they're going to emerge on your radar screen or your inbox. What can you do about it? Number one, ignore them. I'm not very good about that. I don't know about you. It matters to me what people think. Number two, if they start spewing their hatred on lies on your blog or social media pages... Ban them. That's easy enough to do. I think I can do that. Just about managed to read that. It's in blue. Three, if they're on your email list, remove them. And then he says this lovely phrase, forget about it. Yes, that's the one word he says. Don't give them another second thought. You see, you will have known that. You'll have been raised up for God, some of you, in one issue. And somebody, maybe you've preached well. Or maybe you've done something really great and God's used you. Then one of the first things the devil does, he'll send someone in your family, someone in the church to come. Bang, they're in your face. I used to experience it a lot in the early days, sometimes still now. Of course, we need to be open to criticism, which is constructive, but there's a difference between being a critic in the right sense and a befuddled abuser, to use Viola's words. Christ cut himself off from the yeast at the feast. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and and that of Herod. He says, This is what is symptomatic of cutting yourself off from the source. This is where point two links to point one. Yeast is representative of sin or evil, according to 1 Corinthians 5.8. And this particular example speaks of religious self-dependence, that's the Pharisees, and egotistical positional power, that's Herod. Like any sin that resides in the unrepentant heart, this is just two examples of it, it cuts you off from the source of Christ's supplies. The Bible says, but your sins have separated you from him. And the Lord was burning in my heart as I was in this study to ask you this question. What is in your life that cuts you off from the sense of his presence. Because I want to say something to you that A.W. Tozer said. He said, Christianity is a presence religion, a place where we experience God. I paraphrase. 
It is a place where you are free to enter into the most holy place through the veil of his flesh to encounter Jesus daily. And it's only unrepentant, unconfessed sin that will stop you and hinder you in the flow of intimacy. Is that fair? Is that a bit harsh? Sometimes the experience will waver as God trusts us with less of the sense of his presence and we walk by faith and not by sight. But the truth remains that in this context, the Pharisees and King Herod are labelled as people who are self-dependent and egotistical in their positional power. Christ is saying that self-dependence is totally opposite to what I want for my followers. Where did we start? The source of his flowing power is what? God-dependent. God-dependent. Self-dependence and positional ego are opposite to the kingdom and will cut us off from the source of supply which flows from the king. The final point, are you with me? Christ is reigning. This is going to be better. Well, not necessarily preach better, (laughs) but better subject. The journey is exhausting, the opposition is draining, but Jesus Christ is reigning. Come with me, if you will, into the classroom of Jesus Christ, into the school of the refuel, where you'll find the disciples seated in their latest lesson on kingdom supply. Let's reflect briefly on some of the main teaching points that Jesus brings to them in this schoolroom. As we said earlier, he says, I have compassion on people. Our shepherd king cares for people and desires to provide for, listen to this, all their needs. That should be our expectation of God. This is the driver for all kingdom power, accessed and delivered. Let's not forget that this driver is present in God's heart or will create this, a utilitarian Christ, divorced from relationship. In other words, Christ is not the resource who we revisit, he's just the source and I'm just going to take from him. I'm going to do what Tommy Tenney says, I'm going to seek his hands and not his face. I'm going to put what he gives higher than the giver. I'm telling you, there's no need to seek the gifts from the giver. You seek the giver and you get the gifts. You pursue his presence in his person. And in his presence, we have this wonderful thing that his right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. He just pours out on his people what you need. I just want to speak faith into your life this morning because you are going to need something this week. Some of you, it might be food or clothes or money or a home or something for your kids or your marriage or your health. And I want to say to you that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. And God wants to be the source of your supply. And it's only the yeast at the feast, the sin in our lives, unrepentant sin that is, that cuts us off from the source of his supply. The self-dependence rather than God-dependence. The pursuit of positional power over the laying down of our lives for the cause of Christ. There will always be a tussle in your heart between ego and empire and Christ and the kingdom. That's why Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Because everybody has to deny themselves and die to the purposes of God daily. We all face that human challenge to move away from selfishness. Because the gospel is this in a phrase, it is a rescue from selfishness, self-worship. And it's in the church and it's a disease in each one of our lives that we are insecure enough to say, I need to be noticed. I need to be lifted up. I need to be on the foreground. I need to be better. I need to be bigger. I need to have a badge. But God is saying, you need me. You need my presence. 
Stop seeking to be something when you already are something. Stop seeking to grow this way when I want to raise you up this way. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, because actually the weariness is born of your striving to be when God wants you just to be before him. God is hungry for a people who are hungry for him. The Bible says that God is a jealous God and his spirit yearns jealously for his people. Jesus' reign is loving. He has compassion. Jesus' reign is continuing in every season. It was a remote place. Is anyone, any of you in a desert place today? You see, that is a common biblical motif. It's a common thing in your life and mine and our Christian journey that God takes all his people at some stage to the desert. He took Jesus to the desert. He took Moses through the desert. He took Paul into the desert of Arabia, according to Galatians. He took Hannah figuratively into a desert where she was barren and without children. He took Joseph to a pit and a prison, which was a desert experience before he was promoted. And the way they got through it was a God dependence, not a self-dependence. It humbled them like Jonah in the belly of the whale and said, you need me to do all things. Come back to me and I'm calling to you in the name of Jesus today to lay everything down except this one thing, which is to know him. That I might know him, Paul said. This is the guy who planted churches catapulted the gospel across the known world, wrote most of the New Testament. He writes to the Philippian church, I long to know him. And we say, yes, Paul, come on, me too. And the power of his resurrection, yes, Paul. And what's the next bit? And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, no, Paul. You are a nutter. But anyone who follows Jesus will find that in the desert... In the place where the journey is draining, in the place where the opposition is draining, that's where God is. That's where his presence is. He's the God who shuts the mouth of lions. He's the God who builds up his people in their brokenness. He's the God who wants to operate through you in your yieldedness. You see, brokenness biblically is the opposite to broken. It's like a horse, a police horse, that a crowd comes out and the horse just goes, because he's broken in. Nothing can come against the Christian. Come on. They can take it. I've met some ridiculously amazing Christians. And they're not always the celebrities on the God channel. The people in the pew who are suffering in their family life day after day, but they refuse to back down and stop praying to Jesus. Some of you are heroes because you've never given up in the face of your trial. I tell you what, it'll all come out in the wash. It won't be the people you expect to be at the front of the queue when Jesus gives out the medals on that final day. Let's bring this one to land. Jesus' reign involves us, but it depends on him entirely. It was him who provided the bread. We just gave him what we had, the disciples said. We gave him his loaves. And that is exactly the same for you. You give God what you can and he'll do what you can't. God alone is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you've ever asked or thought. Jesus' reign always satisfies. The people were satisfied. I want to ask you this question. Are you satisfied in your journey with God today? Are you satisfied? Let me tell you, you've got to get back to the source. You've got to go to the school of the refuel and say, Jesus, you're the bread of life. You provide living water to those who come to you. I'm thirsty. Will you pour into my life such a refreshing that it shows in the ordinary stuff of my life, in my job, in my family, in my shopping, in my leisure? Come on. That's where true discipleship's found. It's not in the pious religiosity of the Pharisees. And then finally, Jesus' reign 
produced abundance. He's the God of the overflow. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces. Jesus said to them, do you still not understand? I am the source of all that you need. If you come to me, he has to list were you there with the 5,000 and the 12 baskets? Yes. 4,000 and the 7 baskets? Yes. Do you still not understand? I am the source of all you need. And I'm going to close on that today because I think I've made my point. Jesus wants to be the source of everything. Give me a wave if you've seen God do amazing things in your life and provide for you at your deepest need, in your brokenness, in your deserts, in your family hurting, in your children. Let the Lord do it again. He would say to you, were you not there when I did? It's the bread in the basket thing again. Jacob blessed his children leaning on his staff while all the history of God's intervention was carved. He was leaning on the past and saying, Lord, you were faithful then. I'm believing you for the best in my future. I want to say to you, God has a great future for this church. God has a great future for you. If you'll just say, Jesus, you're all I need. Should we stand and just sing a song to close?